Hello, everyone. My name is David Byers. I am the Director of Public Trust uh, here in Ojai, California, the traditional homelands of the Chumash people. Um, and I'm very excited to be here with you all to discuss uh, the feature film, Public Trust. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Jeremy Rubing. I'm the producer of Public Trust. And I'm coming to you from my little sailboat that I live on here in Puget Sound in Seattle. And we're on the ancestral homelands of the Duwamish and the Coastal Salish here. And really excited to, to dig into this film and tell you more about it. When the sun comes shining. We are spiritually and culturally connected to uh, this land. It's like the hair on your head. You pull one hair, you're not going to miss it. And I was scrolling. Every generation, you will always face somebody who represents greed. $150 trillion in mineral value locked up in federally controlled lands. And the dust clouds rolling. If the case can't be made to protect this place, how can you expect to protect anything? People will say, oh, the public land belongs to all the people. Belongs to all the people. I'd like them to tell me which part is mine because I want to sell it. The preponderance of the evidence that I have discovered. The uh, mine is right in front of me. Gotcha. There's an enormous well-heeled movement to take lands away from the American people. To make vast sums of money for somebody and change our country forever. Representatives of Utah have taken upon themselves to declare war upon us, the Native American tribes. I'd drill in a cemetery if there was oil there. Our public land is not for sale and it's not going anywhere. Don Young does not represent the Gwich'in in our voice. I represent you the might, last You might have to represent the Gwich'in. The largest rollback of federal land protection in U.S. The history. Over public land. They really only really want power. You people are enemies and we're going to get your asses and we know what you're up to and we're coming for you. There's a lot more people waking up now. We're taking a stand and we're taking back our home. So ready for the fight because we're not gonna give up. This land that is ours together is a great land. Enjoy new chances, a recreational use. To preserve places like this, we must bring to our work a new spirit of respect and cooperation. Without regard to party, to protect them for all of us and for our children. But what's at stake is this enormous common wealth, the American system of public lands. And I don't say we have the right to it. That's not it. You have the right to whatever you're willing to fight for. This land was made me. That is the trailer for the documentary Public Trust. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. America is a land of natural beauty and natural resources. 
Unfortunately, these two often come into conflict. Never was this more true when it comes to America's 640 million acres of public lands. Filmmakers David Byers and Jeremy Rubing document the fight to protect America's public lands for future generations in their film, Public Trust. We caught up with David from his home in Ojai, California, and Jeremy aboard his sailboat in the Puget Sound. David Byers and Jeremy Rubing, welcome to Factual America. David, how are things? Oh, they're great. Uh, good, good as can be, and I appreciate you having us here. Hey, it's great to have you on. Uh, and Jeremy, how are things with you in on your sailboat? You know, things are great here. It's a it's a typical gray day in Seattle. <laughs> well, uh, David, you're the director, and uh, and Jeremy, you're the producer of Public Trust, uh, which uh, Ben Kettingsberg at the New York Times said, um, quote from his review. Federal land ownership isn't a topic that leaps off the page in a news article, but public trust, a documentary that shows viewers the scenic beauty of those lands, doesn't have the same problem. Uh, Multiple laurels, including Audience Choice Awards, I've noticed. Uh, By the time this airs, I'm sure you'll be on a million views on YouTube. Um, Rave reviews, I haven't seen a a bad one yet. Uh, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, so thanks so much for coming on to the... uh, onto the podcast. Uh, so how are things? I mean, this is, uh, this, has this been as successful as you'd hoped? Oh uh, yeah. You know, I, I think it has, you know, I think our, both of our experience in filmmaking have been through kind of the more traditional channels of you know, the streaming yeah. services and stuff like that. But, uh, like you mentioned, we actually hit, uh, I woke up to text messages from the team saying we hit a million views on YouTube, which oh. was, Super edifying to see. And, you know, you can't really argue with those kinds of numbers. And uh, Patagonia has a lot of experience uh, doing that. So it's been really exciting. I mean, that's amazing because that means you've had a few, like 100,000 or so just in the last few hours. Because when I checked morning my time, it was still 900 and something thousand, you know. Yeah, I I don't know what what happened. Maybe it's it's bots or something, but I'll take the clicks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll take them too. Um, so David, uh, for those, uh, for our listeners out there who um, may not have had a chance to see uh, uh, the film yet, uh, maybe you can give us a little synopsis of what public trust is, is all about. Uh, if I haven't said this already, it's on YouTube. So no excuses. Uh, you don't have to be subscribed to a streaming service. You can just Google it and you can find it. So, um, but tell us a little bit about public trust. Yeah, and a side note, watch it on a big TV with, uh, with really good audio. We put a lot of work into this, people. Figure it out. This is the 21st <laughs> century. YouTube on the big screen, 55 inches, surround sound. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. okay. So, uh, the, you know, it was really interesting. When Jeremy and I um, kind of conceived of this thing, there were two things that we wanted to um, there were two things that we wanted to accomplish and those have actually survived, you know, the two and a half years it took to make this film, which was a, to um, be a love letter to public lands, but also be an expose and not pull any punches in terms of, you know, talking about what's happening and speaking truth to power. And those, those have both uh, survived again, survived the the two and a half years of filmmaking. uh, Unlike many of our concepts do just in general, in terms of uh, documentary filmmaking, But what we essentially do with the film is we provide a rudimentary understanding of what public lands are. And we follow Hal Hal Herring uh, on his journey to discover what's actually going on with public lands, what they mean to Americans, what are the threats to public lands. 
And like that New York Times review said, um, it's not something that exactly leaps off the screen because a lot of this stuff happens in, you know, courtrooms and boardrooms and, you know, closed negotiating sessions outside of the, uh, the view of the American people. And while this is all publicly available, it's not all put together in such a way that, you know, you could spend a lifetime trying to d digest all of this information. So what we wanted to do was you know, provide an inkling into what public lands are, um, what they mean to Americans, what the threats are, and, and, and what's going on right now in terms of um, public lands. I think you raise uh, some, some good points. I mean, as an American who's, I mean, I'm living in the UK and have for a while. Um, um, maybe this is cutting to the chase, but uh, I, I, I ended up being quite pissed off after I watched this, if I have to be just upfront with you. It's one of these things where I felt like, why don't I know this stuff's going on. I knew I used felt like I used to know about a lot of this kind of stuff. And then I don't know, our attentions, my attention's been distracted. I, I'm not sure. But uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about, we don't need to talk about my lack of attention, but uh, maybe for those listeners, I mean, most of our listeners are in the U.S., but uh, a good many aren't. Um, so U.S. public lands, uh, what, I mean, it's about, what, 640 million acres that, that we're talking about. Is that right, David? Yeah, exactly. 640 million acres. And you really can't be blamed for like not having a, a holistic concept of public lands in your mind. First of all, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky, you know, concept to pin down, like what are public lands? It's not, you know, the, the Grand Teton National Park or Yellowstone. It's also, you know, ports and forts. It's also, you know, Fish and Wildlife Services, Bureau of Land Management land. It's, it's, it's one in different things. And it's all uh, managed under you know various agencies, um, and it's it's confusing. And if you and if you haven't been kind of keeping up with the threats to those things, that's very much by design to those people who would threaten these things. They're they're counting on your ignorance. They're counting on it being complex. They're counting on short attention spans in this in the in these days of like ever evolving and ever rotating outrages. You know, to not be able to keep your your eye on the ball with this one, and and and, and you know that's that's what we're trying to overcome with this film is just cut through that noise and have a moment for public lands. We actually have a, a, a clip we're going to play right now, which I think kind of gives a good sort of intro to people, especially those who aren't or Americans who don't know, have knowledge about what public lands are about. And it's um, Hal Herring, who, uh, as we've already met, he's already gotten a mention. I'm sure he's going to get a few more, um, but uh, talks about how this is sort of a, at least initially a very uniquely American um, hopefully more than experiment um, and uh, sort of the, the struggle that we, we face. The public lands are really a uniquely American experiment. Every one of us in every state, in every county has used the public lands. A ball field, a park, a trail, biking, fishing and hunting, climbing and skiing and all the things we do own public lands. The American public lands comprise about 640 million acres owned by the American people and managed in trust by the federal government. A hodgepodge of federal agencies are tasked with managing the public lands for multiple use, which means recreation, conservation, climate change, resilience. On the other side of the line, you have oil and gas development, logging, grazing, and mining. The problem is that there's a very precarious balance to strike between industry and the common good. 
because of the great wealth in our public lands, that balance is never going to be fixed. It's always going to be in flux. It's like, like having all this, it's like totally unique in the world. Why did I think that people weren't targeting this, given that it was probably the greatest cash cow left on the planet, you know? David, that was a, I mean, I think that sets the scene quite well. Uh, what I found interesting, it reminded me, because uh, I'm of a certain age, growing up as a well, small kid in the 70s and, and into the 80s, but uh, um, 60s and 70s were sort of a high point, glory days, it seems almost, for um, at least in terms of a sort of bipartisan support and consensus. Um, even Nixon was bo on board. He set up the EPA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Is that, I mean, is, uh, is that a fair point to be made? Yeah, I think, you know, it's obviously infinitely nuanced, as is everything. But yeah, like, yeah. you know, there was a, a point in time where politicians were competing to be, to be seen as good on conservation. You know, the American people saw these commons, the clean air, the clean water, as something that we all wanted. And so we demanded from our politicians uh, that they protect them for us uh, against any kind of private interest that would take them for their own profit off them and leave, leave us with the cleanup. Mm. You know, over the years, it's become much more of a, a partisan football uh, in terms of right versus left. And it, it really shouldn't be. Um, mm. It's just, it's just become part of these kind of culture wars that we find ourselves mm. immersed in where everything is politicized yeah. and, you know, the very existence of clean water is seen as an affront to some sort of freedom that people, that people like uh, are, are upholding as a, as a, one of their central ideas. Yeah. Uh, it just reminds me as a kid, I remember asking my dad, what's the difference between a conservationist and a conservative? Uh, I think uh, because you use the term conservation, which I, it was a very seventies term, actually seventies, eighties. It's, it's not one you hear very often anymore um but jeremy when did this all start going wrong or i mean as you say i agree it's very nuanced i mean there are some things sure, there sure. from the 60s and 70s we wouldn't want to repeat but uh there's a clear moment uh you know obviously we highlight different moments in the film and i think the first place you always start is an acknowledging where these public lands came from in the first place and you'd be remiss not to acknowledge that these are native lands and they were taken from the people of this continent in um, often a really horrible ways. And, um, but nonetheless, here we are, and it, it is kind of amazing that we still have um, untouched landscapes or, you know, untouched landscapes, but healthy landscapes and places for people to visit like this. But I think there's a moment you could define um, probably towards the end of the Nixon administration, early Reagan administration, there's this um, statement, you know, that environmentalists are like watermelons. They're green on the outside and red on the inside, meaning, you know, like they're into conservation, but in, really in the middle, they're just communists. And that was a bad word. Uh -huh. And I think it was very intentionally painted that way with James Watt in the Department of the Interior and mm -hmm. during the Reagan administration, as we highlighted very intentionally in the film with the Sagebrush Rebellion, you know, it was really important historical moment where sort of the government was made to be the bad guy here even though the government represents us the people and is supposed to reflect our common interest in these lands and um i think it really set up these these two didactic camps that diverged from there and yeah. these culture wars kind of fanned from that point 
Uh, speaking of culture wars, I mean, when you're, when you're my age, the thing you remember James Watt for, besides the fact that everyone seemed to be up in arms when he got appointed, uh, was that uh, I think the thing that really drove him out of D.C. was, and the man's still alive, actually, uh, the, uh, uh, is he hated the Beach Boys. And that was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, had, he tried to get the Beach Boys banned from Fourth of July, you know, and so, uh, you know, the president, the, even the Nancy and Ron said, no, 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 we like the Beach Boys. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Right. Um, yeah, very, well, inter- very interesting individual. Um, said with the interesting and in, uh, inverted commas, uh, sort of Southern way of saying interesting, right. interesting, but uh, yeah. Bless his heart. Yeah, it's like, bless his heart. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and Terry Tempest Williams, the, the author who appears in our film, actually makes the statement that they actually made it be sort of a religious aid, if you will, at that point. They kind of like mm. took on this air of um, religious dogma. Well, I mean, it's absolutely crazy, but it had a bit of element of manifest destiny to it, which kind of gets to, back to this point you were making, which I, I hadn't actually uh, raised, but the, uh, the very important point about how these are all Native American lands to begin with obviously. Um, and also the, um, I mean, and for those who aren't familiar, almost all this is in the, what is it about 13 states in the, in the Western part of the United States where almost the vast majority of these lands are. Uh, if we were to show, Jeremy was to show us his map. Yeah, I'm not asking you to, but you can, uh, there would be only little tiny dots, you know, on the sort of East coast, East coast, uh, sort of Midwest areas and stuff, but it's, it, it looks like it almost fills up the entire Western part of the United States. Yeah. The public lands map certainly appears that way. Um, however, you know, it is important to note that there are wildlife refuges in every state. There are local and state parks in every state and county. And this is a, a public lands concept as well. Um, but it, yeah, very much so. The, the Western states are the, the largest amount of our public land system. So, I mean, part fueling this, um, this development, this uh, def- flaming the uh, culture wars, if you will, I guess, is uh, a group I had never heard of uh, called the, uh, I tried to get, find them on their acronym, but that doesn't work. So you have to type in American Legislative Exchange Council. Uh, just rolls off the tongue, uh, David. Uh, what? Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this uh, this group of uh, individuals. Sure. So Alec is a huge dark money organization that basically puts out model legislation to uh, you know politicians they see as friendly, and then is able to funnel money to those uh, legislators. Well, I think John Oliver did a really good segment on it. If if anyone wants to go look that up, um, okay. it's. What's that? Put that in the. We'll put that. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Actually, we can do yeah, that. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's it's a it's a huge dark money thing, and it's and it's it's scary and it's frightening. I mean, like some of these legislators forget to take the Alec letterhead off of the, this model legislation before they actually introduce it. I mean, it's so. It would be really funny if it wasn't so like well, you know, know. infuriating, you know. But like, I mean, it is funny, but it's also like just because of the brazen ineptitude involved there, but also. You know, it's it, it has very real consequences for us, which is yeah. super unfortunate. Yeah. You know, I don't. I I used to. I agree. I, I would usually say something like it's it's not funny, but I'm I'm laughing. And we had the guys from Class Action Park on. If, I don't know if you've seen that one. But, I haven't. Uh, I, I, my neighbors are raving about that movie, though. Yeah, you got to see yeah. it. And yeah. uh, you know, a shameless uh, uh, pitch here. But uh, but the thing is, 
the uh, as he said, well, laughter is what you do when you can't do anything else. You you know, if you can't cry, you can't scream. You know, it's just the human reaction because there's so many there's so many elements of that film where you just like that is just absolutely crazy horrible but you just find yourself bursting out laughing uh but yeah i mean i think you've got some really good examples in the film um we won't go into those details people should watch the film but uh i think um um you know legislation that people thought they'd agreed a, a week later being changed just as it's being voted on the uh house or senate floor and whole passages from Alec um, model legislation being snuck in and, and, and not, not even intending to try to legislate. It's really done as a, I think one of your, one of your talking heads describes it as a poison pill in that, mm. in that instance. But um, uh, Jeremy, I mean, what I sense it, uh, I don't just sense, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. I think you're very uh, upfront about this in the film, but something seems to have changed even taken a quite a turn for the worse since 2016 would is that that fair to say without doubt i mean and and from a purely factual standpoint not from a any sort of political standpoint um the trump administration has been the absolute worst in our nation's history in terms of removing protections for public lands i mean 34 million acres have had protections removed. And that was since May, so it's probably more since then, frankly. Um, but really, the pivotal moment in the day we started shooting this film was when Donald Trump landed in Salt Lake City, Utah, to attempt to rescind the Bears Ears National Monument. Mm. And in our country, that's um, unprecedented. It's the Antiquities Act of 1906. Nobody's ever attempted to remove another president's efforts to protect a place. And frankly, it probably won't stand up in um, subsequent legal challenges, though here we are three years later still trying mm -hmm. to filter through that. But yeah, I mean, um, the amount of public lands that were opened at that point to um, leasing, even without major companies really asking for it, the... Uh, rollbacks of all kinds of rules and legislation that were intended to protect people's health and mm -hmm. business didn't, or, you know, industry ne didn't necessarily have a problem with. They just, um, they're not in the business of making those rules. They're in the business of making money. So it's been really interesting. A lot of it has been very, um, has been done very sloppily, if that's a word. But um, mm -hmm. so we're seeing legal challenges right now and we're seeing, um, the Trump administration actually not being able to fulfill a lot of these sort of promises that they made, um, whether it's to industry or, or to friends, but absolutely we're in an unprecedented time. I think a lot of people think that our, in our country, a lot of democratic institutions are hanging by a thread. And um, certainly when it comes to public lands and, and losing them to corporate interests, um, I think it's in a lot of people's minds, this would be a final coup of, plutocracy claiming victory right yeah i mean i think it's as you say i mean there's always and there always will be um and that's even in that clip that we have with uh, hal um that there's always going to be this struggle because the public lands also are sitting on some pretty significant in some areas natural resources that we are still using in terms of uh, fossil fuels and minerals and and these sort of things but it just seems, uh, and as you've depicted in your film, uh, it's just, you know, so so 
big, you know, no, no news here. Uh, corporate extractive industries want to make money, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, it just seems, you know, I think the other, you know, I think it's in their title, public trust. The government's supposed to be managing the lands in our interests. And uh, it just seems brazen what's happened in the last few years in terms of, I mean, people not even bothered, bothering to really hide it, you know. Uh, they're just, it's just, you know, in some ways you could say it's a good thing, I guess, that at least they're out front about it. But uh, um, it, it is absolutely amazing, uh, as you say. And uh, as you say, the Antiquities Act 1906, I mean, that's what, what Teddy Roosevelt used to actually get this whole, whole project started, um, which I think you document quite well. Um, let's, uh, it's, this is moving very quickly. I, I, it may be a little bit early, but I'm going to give our listeners a slight break. Um, we might have a clip to play for them while they're, uh, whatever, running to the bathroom, making a cup of coffee or tea or something, but uh, we'll be back uh, shortly after that. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. When I'm out there on the landscape, my relatives, my ancestors, they're here. Feel it in my body, feel it in my mind, in my spirit. And they're always with me. Just down it. You wanted to see the uranium mine too, correct? Yeah. See, you know, uranium in general in this area has been pretty controversial. That's definitely what we've been hearing. The uh, mine is right in front of me. Gotcha. Before these were public lands, they were native lands. And I think it's really important to remember that. And public lands have many meanings to many people. But right now, the understory of Bears Ears is uranium. The understory of Bears Ears is oil and gas. We've had a long legacy of oil, gas, and uranium extraction in these areas. Dried up springs and the contaminated water. You can just see like how the landscape is just decimated and scarred. It's really just been take, 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 and run. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with David Byers and Jeremy Rubin, director and producer of Public Trust on YouTube, uh, brought to you by Patagonia. Uh, we've already quoted Ben Kettigsberg. He describes the uh, in his review, the documentary is conventionally structured and sometimes placid. I would actually disagree with that, but anyway. But it has an alarming message. Is it possible that even the Grand Canyon may not be safe? David, is the Grand Canyon safe? Um, well, my sometimes placid answer would be no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I thought that was a hilarious uh, quote from the, that. I was like, that's going on the DVD jacket. Um, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever. My, my, wife is, my wife has just taken that and run with it, trust me. It's, does but, she have um, t-shirts now? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes <laughs> placid. That's a, that's a great idea. Um, 
So, yeah, long story short, you know, it seems like a bit of hyperbole to say the Grand Canyon is is under threat, but there's actually very real, tangible, actual threats to the very Grand Canyon right now. And I'm going to have Jeremy talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, it's like Hal says in the film, you know, wherever there's a resource and it belongs to the public, there is going to be someone who's going to lean on the people who, who control that resource, and in this case, the government, to get that resource for themselves, you know, for profit, to become more wealthy. And that's, that's, that's just kind of our crony capitalist, like, you know, captured government, like kind of model that we're, that we're existing under right now. And it's really unfortunate. And that's not the way it should be. But, you know, to show that that's not, you know, at all, even a bit of, um, hyperbole jeremy are you up to date on the stuff that's going on in the grand canyon right now well to, yeah i'm a little you know a little behind but there absolutely are uranium interests in the grand canyon mm-hmm. and there has been mining um very close to the park boundaries and there's been attempts to change those boundaries in fact and there's even been um pollution and uh water and ground pollution from some of that uranium mining in the park itself in the Colorado River. So it is not hyperbole. In fact, it's, um, uh, there's some groups like the Grand Canyon um, Trust is actually fighting that battle right now in Flagstaff, Arizona. There's a lot of, lot of buzz. There's also some other development issues um, with folks who want to build some, some really big like access, like gondolas and things like that. The Disneylandification of the Grand Canyon, in other words. Yeah, or the utter ruin, however you look, conventionally structured. <laughs> right. But isn't this, I mean, is this, must this be, I mean, most of us uh, must be thinking, well, surely the Grand Canyon will never get touched and surely, you know, Yosemite will never get touched. And I guess that's probably this uh, complacency that many well, of us must have. To some extent, those really iconic places won't like the core of them won't but that therein lies the problem right this is a postage stamp of something that's a much it's a much bigger landscape and it needs Mm. support larger than just a handful of acres of rock and ice they call it when you just like you know protect a little mountain but there's all the habitat around it there's the water that comes into the watershed into the grand canyon it's a whole system and it's all public lands and to think of it as just like one little spot on the map that we drew a line around and that political boundary therefore protects it. It's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think right. that's a good point. Um, I just want to sw- switch gears a little bit here uh, and talk about the project. Cause I think this is very interesting. Um, a lot of elements to it are, are very interesting. Um, so, uh, I mean, whose idea was this project? Um, yeah. I think you mentioned at the beginning that you guys had this idea. So, uh, is that one you want to take, David, or should Jeremy go for it? Sure. Um, so we, like, really kind of, you know, so I made No Man's Land, which was about the Bundy occupation of the Mauer National Wildlife Refuge right. in Oregon. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, like, touched upon uh, public lands conflicts. It was kind of a smaller conflict. There was almost a bit of a red herring in terms of this larger conflict. So through that, I mm. kind of became aware of this larger kind of paradigm of public lands um, and, like, the, vis-a-vis the threats against them. Um, and it was during the actual festival run of that that I met Jeremy. And I was, you know, I, like, I thought it would be impossible to make a, a film about public lands. 
Um, mm. <laughs> because it's such a huge topic, you know, 640 million acres, and that's just the physical aspect of it. What does it mean in terms of history? What does it mean in terms of, you know, what it means to be an American? Like, there's so many, like, philosophical um, and his- historical rabbit holes you can go down, not, not to mention, like, the, the things that we want to talk about that are actually happening right now. So I just thought it was this whole thing that was too much of a pipe dream. And, you know, enter Jeremy Rubin, who, who spent his entire life, you know, growing up on public lands, immersed in this topic, mm. uh, not only in his family life as a kid, but also, um, you know, as he uh, entered into his career. And then, so I met Jeremy, and then Jeremy, I'm going to let you take the story from there. <laughs> okay. I think you uh, discredit your experience, too. I mean, you know, I think David's backstory is really the real interesting one here, because you have somebody who doesn't have a huge relationship with public lands in Georgia who moves to Colorado and is kind of mind blown at how you can just go camp on national forests anywhere you want. And it's sort of like all there for all of us. And so to me, that's, that was really compelling to hear his backstory, but yeah, we essentially started brainstorming and we we put together this like two page pitch document. We brought it to Patagonia who coincidentally wanted to make a public lands film and a really good friend, Ben Knight, and an incredible filmmaker kind of connected us. And um, Patagonia liked it. And Dave mm-hmm. and I looked at each other and were like, oh, dear God, we now have to make this film. <laughs> and, <Right>. uh, <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, like David said, it's like, it is almost impossible. In fact, I would argue that it is impossible. There's just too many directions you could go. This is just mm-hmm. our best effort at failure. And, um, I think it is resonating because we we did focus on those Americans who this affects and are, are living through these battles. Mm. I think um, a, a couple of points there. I mean, uh, David said, Jeremy, you grew up on public lands. So you, you, could you say a little something about that? I was not something I was aware of. Yeah, not not actually squatting on public lands. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I grew up in Colorado um, with parents who are incredibly outdoors oriented. So in my uh, more adult career, I, I worked in conservation for several, several years and for different think tanks and, and mm-hmm. NGOs. Okay. And, and David, so the other side of this is uh, Patagonia's involvement, which mm-hmm. I find very interesting. Um, um, maybe tell everyone who Patagonia is and uh, sort of what it stands for and why they and how you all got involved to, to, in, on this project. Sure. So, you know, Patagonia at its most basic is a clothing retailer, you know, but um, what they've kind of established themselves as um, since their inception is a company that's really uh, willing to like buck the trends and like kind of stick with their principles and their founding principles, which is, you know, essentially trying to save, I think their mission statement is now we're the business of saving our home planet. Like that's, that's a pretty bold statement from a, from a clothing retailer. And so to that end, they, they've used this kind of, power that they've accumulated by like making really good gear and really respected gear and, 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 you know, kind of leverage that into um, being able to speak truth to power whenever they want. And they've kind of become bulletproof because of it. And that that's something that you don't see in a lot of companies who are, you know, kind of driven more by like what they see is, uh, you know, focus groups, public opinion, stuff like that. Like, uh, like Patagonia really kind of just leads the way on that. And so there's no other company that would have given us, you know, the funds to make this movie up front and like, great, this is what we want to do. Go for it. And then not 
tried to like hedge on the back yeah. end or like kind of pull their punches at all. Like that's just not them. And I think that that's like, it's, it's an incredible position to be in. Like you're to be able to like sell clothes, make money. Um, and then, you know, kind of have uh, the totality of that company, like immersed in that ethos yeah. and, and, and it, and it doesn't damage you and it only makes you stronger. Like it just, it's just, to me, it's, it's just, it's just such a, a lesson that, you know, stick with your principles and like, and be loud about them and don't hedge and don't try to just go with the flow and you'll have success, you know, yeah. like that's yeah. the children's book story version <laughs> of your story. You know? Well, I think uh, Yvonne uh, Schoenard is a bit of a children's book uh, character in some ways, but uh, uh, Jeremy, I mean, what is, you're, you're the producer on this. Um, so what's it like working with them? Is there an unlimited budget? How does, how, how involved do they get? Uh, do they uh, crunch the numbers and tell you no more drone shots? I mean, what, uh, how does that work? Uh, you know, they're incredible to work with. Um, we were given a really artistic freedom that was important and um, allowed us to make the film that we made. I mean, when you actually look at the film that we made, we didn't make a film about recreation or outdoor recreation, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Like we really didn't. And that would have been the really easy way to go with a, a topic like this. But it wasn't getting at the core of what these lands are to us. And it, I think it does them a huge credit to show that they didn't really flex on us about that. Um, there were moments where they absolutely were interested in us showing that side of the story because it is a side of the story. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think the budget that we got was the one that we needed to make this film, frankly. And it wasn't like there was, an, you know, nobody's getting rich off of this project. Yeah. Uh, right. we're, you know, um, but yeah, I think there was a really healthy tension and their filmmaking team is talented folks and their, um, their interest was in allowing us to make the film that we said we were going to make. And so, you know, ultimately I think David said it really well, but you look at this company's origins. I have the original Patagonia catalog is Chenard equipment that my dad had when you like would fill in the type of climbing mm. you want and mail it in. And he gave that to me a few, a couple years ago when I started working on this project and you read through the catalog and Yvonne Chenard is describing climbing ethics and not wanting to pound in pitons and bolts everywhere and rock mm. route. Mm. It's been since its origins and it continues today. And, you know, we're not shill, we're not shills for brands or anything like that. But um, I think it does say a lot about their independence and the fact that they let a couple of bums like us take on this topic. <laughs> right. Uh, don't be so harsh on yourself. But I, do you think, Jeremy, is this a bit of a, not of a trend, but I'm aware of other films that are, very different topics, um, very different companies even. Um, we had 5B that came out in the last year or two that was about AIDS and the history of sort of the AIDS epidemic in, in San Francisco, and that was Johnson & Johnson uh, was mm -hmm. the, behind that. I mean, is this something you see, this is a bit of a tangent, but is this something you, might, you see increasingly uh, happening? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think as filmmakers, it's something we want to say, yes, we see this increasingly yeah, exactly. happening. To be able to have a budget when yeah. you start a project is an incredible thing. But um, yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to the types of folks who can actually fund a large project like this, it, it is often like the founder's um, passions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's, what's happening. We're seeing film become this incredible tool, especially during pandemic times. Yeah we can reach these audiences. I think 
hopefully people are learning that funding these kinds of projects um, elevates their causes and creates impact. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Okay. Uh, David, what's it like having Robert Redford as an executive producer? And oh, how- you know, he comes over, he gives me foot rubs in the morning, <laughs> we coffee together. Does he babysit the kids? Or? Babysits the kids, you know, plays with my, my chihuahua. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was great. You know, I mean, it's like any kind of, he's a very high level executive producer. Yeah, and like yeah. his, his role was helping us uh, shape the narrative, um, especially as we kind of entered into our final cut stage. Mm. Um, kind of, you know, lending the insight that his years of, you know, being in film ha- has given him. Uh, but also to kind of uh, create a signal boost for us as we were going forward with this and, and lending his name and reputation to this film as we're trying to put it out there into the world as something that people should watch. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's about getting eyeballs on the film. And I think he yeah. helped a ton in terms of not only making making the film a better film, but also amplifying the message of the film mm-hmm. and getting eyeballs on it. Okay. And, and Jeremy, was this... I mean, was this always going to go on YouTube or was there some discussion about the best way of uh, getting this out in front of an audience? Yeah, there was a lot of different discussion about the distribution. Um, We were lucky enough to have our film festival premiere in person. And I think it was like the last film festival that ever happened, um, at least that wasn't virtual. And then quickly the discussion shifted and... I think it was important to get as many eyeballs as possible on the film. And um, early on, the folks at Patagonia had the foresight. They had had this this concept developed on a couple other projects with like Artificial and some others that they had done, and they had a lot of success. And I think we're at uh, 1,020,000 views as of like right before we started this podcast interview in just a week and a half. And so... I can't really argue with that as a really good um, tactic. I think there are, and we're looking at other options because there's people who, you know, view theater and things like that or view film on different platforms. So we're talking about um, putting it up in different places like Amazon Prime and things like that. But from the beginning that I think that was a goal is to make sure that it was on demand and free. Okay. And that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, I think that speaks volumes. The, the, just the numbers you've had in in a week and a half. Um, I mean, back back to the film because I'm I, I think there's some great. Uh, just talk a little bit about the storytelling. I mean, these uh, you've got some amazing human characters on here. So, um, David, maybe we could talk a little bit about Hal uh, Herring. Um, um, he and I have both drawn a paycheck from The Economist, and we're right. also, and we both host podcasts. And unfortunately for him. He's about as I think loquacious as I am, I think. But uh, <laughs> um, but what? Uh, how did you come across Hal, and how did he become the focus, uh, a focus, I should say? Sure. So um, back when I was making No Man's Land, um, Hal had also gone out to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge mm-hmm. um, to kind of see what was going on out there, and he wrote this article in High Country News called "The Darkness at the Heart of the Malheur." And if you want to see a really amazing piece of journalism that kind of uh, pierces the heart of a very simple seeming incident, but just reveals infinite complexity about the American zeitgeist that I recommend going and Googling that and finding it because it is so good. And so he wrote that I read it. And then um, my editor and uh, David Osset and the story consultant, Lana Wilson were like, Hey, you need to go. <laughs> you need to go interview this guy. And I was like, okay. 
And so I went and uh, interviewed him for No Man's Land, and he became kind of a central um, voice in that uh, that really got at the heart of what was happening there. And then when we started making this film, um, it was, you know, I knew he was going to kind of be a mentor in terms of shaping our thinking and stuff like that, but I wasn't mm-hmm. really thinking of, of him uh, as a character in the film. Um, but as we chose our three geographies and our characters to connect, to, to, to kind of lead us through those geographies, it became obvious that we needed a way to connect all this stuff. And rather than going the, um, the uh, you know, kind of voice of God narrator thing, uh, we wanted mm-hmm. to have someone who was kind of living this thing. Um, and the, the, the answer was right there in Hal Herring, but I was very resistant to, to using him as I had relied on upon his loquaciousness, as you say, yeah. in, uh, in No Man's Land. But uh, then um, actually uh, all credit to Jeremy and also our uh, cinematographer, Drew Anthopoulos, who prevailed upon me to you know just say screw it this is the guy this is the guy who's been yeah. living it you know he grew up like obsessed with public lands and he's also really freaking fun to hang out with like he's a good friend of ours like we like to go and like sleep on his floor in his house and drink his whiskey <laughs> and play with his dogs like it's a good time you know so so you know there was that yeah. as well yeah i mean it i mean uh, the film the scenery you show these you know people like hal um do does make you want to rethink some decisions you might have Right. life about where right. you've ended up living and where you how your kids are growing up but uh um i mean then there's some i mean I, there's there's a host of other a lot of people go and well, a lot of a decent number of people go on camera but i think uh would be remiss if we didn't mention uh bernadette demientif um it's one of the most graceful and eloquent people i've seen i think in a in a long time yeah she is powerful I was actually just on a phone call with Bernadette uh, yesterday. We check in a lot. And I think early on, it was obvious to us that she was, had to be the voice for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I mean, Mm. um, I had never met anybody quite like that before who, without any ego, was purely invested in this massive cause just for her people and her grandchildren. And, um, you Mm. know, like amid a lot of really of difficulties there's a lot of forces that try to tear her down on a daily basis frankly and um she just keeps marching forward this is what she's here for is to protect this place <laughs> and her story was so compelling and her friendship was it just became really obvious that um she was the voice for this place and continues to be so in her own advocacy and work and then we've also got uh people like um Angelo Baca, the um, sort of Native American filmmaker who's associated with Bears Ears, and also Spencer Shaver, uh, activist involved with the Boundary Waters. I think you've just said, I think you said it very well, uh, since this obviously is a conventionally structured doc. Um, sometimes that, placid. Yeah, sometimes placid. <laughs> um, that uh, you had to find voices for the main characters, which really are... Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, Bears Ears, and Boundary Waters. Is that probably a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I think you're the first person to say that, but I, I think that's absolutely accurate. You know, there's always I'll like the, the trope. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put that the asterisk whenever I say that from now on. Oh, yeah, exactly. I trademark that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's, it's a big trope in like the documentary film world. They say the land is the character and stuff like that. But this is, you know, this is a story about land, but like we, we have to translate this kind of 
abstraction is something that people can understand. And I think the conduits of using characters who are living on these lands and who care deeply about them um, and can embody the spirit of those places. Um, it really, it just helps us to translate what this means to our audience. Okay. And, and how do you, how do you film this land so that they, as you say, we have to see this on a 55 inch TV and surround sound and, or whatever the, the latest stuff is. You can see how behind I am. Uh, but uh, how, do you, how do you film this so that these places live up to their actual natural beauty? I mean, because I think you've, there's some lovely s- cinematography in this, in this film. You just uh, you hit that red button you know, <laughs> keep rolling. It's hard, you know, it's, it's so hard. And I think, you know, it's just Jeremy mentioned earlier, like we're trying to evoke these places where we can't fully encapsulate or, or show you what these places are. You can't see on a 55 inch screen or a 100 foot screen, yeah. what it's like to, you know, wake up in the Arctic national wildlife refuge or what it's like to go paddling on the boundary waters and like, catch walleye on a fishing line, eat it that evening, you know, and, and you can't know what it's like to see and feel the, the ancient history, you know, on, on the land and bears ears, you know, when you see the petroglyphs and the cliff dwellings of people that lived there tens of thousands of years ago, like you can't, you can't do that. So we, we just try to show, you know, as many beautiful parts of it as we can. But, um, and, but I think it's also through telling it through the story of the people try to evoke that history and evoke these this kind of philosophical context of what these places mean to us as human beings much less as americans is it's, it's really what we were going for it's just dawned on me this is just one big boondoggle you got patagonia to pay for you to go to the alaska national wildlife refuge and to go walleye fishing in minnesota and do all kinds of things that's uh wow what a what a dream job this interview is over yeah, yeah, that's exactly where we're going. <laughs> um, we tis, tis I revealed, you know, that's exactly what we were going for. Yeah, well, it's like I've got a, a, a brother-in-law who actually works for uh, Fish and Wildlife in Alaska. And I, oh, I, 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 yeah, exactly. I mean, he has, it's dawned on everyone that he has the perfect job, actually. I know, but, I know. Um, where, where is he in Alaska? He's based in Fairbanks. Okay. Yeah. So, but he goes out to, I mean, to be honest, I don't talk to him that often. <laughs> he's, he's my brother-in-law, but, uh, the, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, based in Fairbanks and um, I've been out there once. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I never made it out to the national, you know, the Anwar, but uh, uh, it's just, it's one of these things you, until you go, you can't really even appreciate, you know, the, the natural beauty. Uh, for sure you know um so you know i I, this is the cliche question of the uh of of the podcast but uh uh either one of you i mean what is what would you say um this film's really about because it's obviously it's about what's happening to public lands and things but what is you know what is the what's the real sort of I, i think you kind of alluded to to in a, different answers throughout this podcast about sort of uh, what's maybe this film is actually capturing. I'm going to toss this one to Jeremy as um, cliches are his department. Okay. Oh man, <laughs> classic, classic <laughs> David Byers right there. I'm just directing, um, man. Just directing. <laughs> He's doing his you know, job. Yeah, exactly. Just pointing, <laughs> point us all in the right direction. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, look to be perfectly like honest and earnest, which is what I'm good at. Um, this is for us, this is about, 
you could have made this film, honestly, you could have made a very similar film about healthcare mm. or all kinds of things. It's or income inequality. Mm. Uh, it's one, one more really big story and it's taking place across the landscape of this country yeah. of um, the haves and the have nots in, in some ways. And yeah. in, in a last real big cash cow and a, a taking and without, our engagement as citizens, it's something for that we can all lose. And it was clear to us that we needed to highlight what this public land system is and that there are threats to it. And um, I talk about it like this is public lands 101 is what this yeah. film is. Yeah. It's just, a, it's the surface. And um, it's so much, so much bigger than what all the things we're actually able to touch on. But it really is this huge democratic American idea that you don't see really in many other mm. countries around the world. And it's an opportunity for unity and healing and in all kinds of things, it's an opportunity for everybody to come together and protect something good for, for future generations. And that's what I've learned from my public lands. And I think that's what we're, we're trying to make this film about. Well, well, thank you for that, because I think you've also sort of answered the next question, really, which is, uh, I mean, I, I say it's explicitly political film. I mean that in the sense that at the end, it's very upfront. You, you make the statement at the end. Uh, I think the timing is obviously related to the, to the election coming up, that there's an election and the whole House of Representatives is up for re-election and... I think this time around, what is it? Thirty-five senators. It's roughly a third of the Senate's up, as it is every uh, every few years. Um, but what do you ultimately hope to achieve with this film? It's probably beyond uh, just maybe what happens on November third. Um, yeah. And is that sort of what you're getting to? Both both of you can answer, but it's 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 public lands 101 and it's a stepping stone for us to all of us to get to know a little bit more about what's what's actually going on sure you know you know the politics has kind of become a, a dirty word uh, especially now in this polarized environment but politics yeah. is simply the act of all of us coming together to decide what's best for all of us yeah. you know, to coordinate our efforts to try to make life better for everyone mm -hmm. and what we're trying to achieve with this film is while we do play pretty heavily in that political sandbox our our point is is that public land should be taken out of politics this is something that like when I'm, and I mean partisan politics when I say that yeah we should, we should all come together and say you know this is something that we all care about because we do it's the the polling is there it's overwhelming Americans are in favor of protections clean mm -hmm. water clean air all these things and this isn't something that we're going to compromise on this isn't something that our politicians can can promise to their campaign donors this isn't something that people can mm. you know formulate entire careers and think tanks and whatnot trying to divest the American people of public lands like this this is just a non-starter like there's no money there's no benefit in doing that to anybody that's yeah. what we're trying to, to to take public lands out of the arena of partisan political football and put it into this place where it's sacrosanct and it can't be touched mm -hmm. and we say no yeah. And I think I think you've actually saying it be well much better, obviously, than I would have said it. Because one of the, one of the lessons I draw from this is one I draw from a few films we've had on recently is sort of I put I put it down as failed American politics, but I think it's more it's more the legislative branch 
just needs to start doing its job. It seems like, um, and, and both parties have blood on their hands. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, that's for sure. Uh, but it just, I mean, I, I mean, even in the film, you talk about the, you know, the things the Obama administration did to uh, certainly uh, uh, put, the, put through the um, bear's ears, um, you know, um, um, legislation, or well, not legislation, the executive order, basically. But it shouldn't have, I mean, it would be a lot firmer. And, okay, we've never had this, this, uh, this happen before with the president overruling something that was done under the Antiquities Act to get into the details of all this, but um, it would be a lot firmer ground if Congress could just legislate. Just do it. Just do it. And it can't seem to do it. And it's not just this issue. Uh, And so everything gets left to the courts, which is why the courts get so politicized and why presidents have to do everything by executive order. I didn't mean this to be poli-sci 101, but I mean, (laughs) I think it's, it it does seem to be something that is affecting so many issues um, in the country. Well, and that's why, that's why I say like you, you could have made this film about healthcare in a lot of ways or take on any other issue, but look at the issues that have actually pierced that partisan politics, politics narrative and are no longer really up Mm. for debate. There are, they are, they exist out there. Marriage equality being a good example in this country, it's progressed incredibly. And, and mm. there's a lot of issues like that, that politicians don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole and um, protecting public lands. Our argument is probably needs to be one of those, yeah. but you know, the, the legislative branch has been captured and there is blood on both parties hands. Um, during the Obama administration, the expansion of fracking on, on public lands ballooned yeah. exponentially. And so, um, but it's important to note that currently the GOP as their party platform has it written in there that the transfer of public lands to the states and therefore private interests is of like utmost importance. And it's still written in that platform. And well, yeah, yeah, because they didn't actually come up with a new platform this time around, but, uh, yeah. but uh, I think, um, I mean, and that, if I recall correctly, actually, that that reminds me. I think it's uh, it's stuff ex- explicitly written by Alec, isn't it? That's in that uh, in that platform. Yep. Absolutely. Um, as we come, believe it or not, we're coming to an end uh, of our time together. Uh, I was just thinking, you the film was um, uh, obviously it takes a while to make these films, and then you had the um, went to festivals, and you have, but you have some titles at the end. Uh, and I was just wondering, are you in, are you able to give us some updates? Because I think it's interest would be interesting. No. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I think you say the government was about to expand uh, drilling, uh, etc., in uh, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. Is is that gone ahead? I'm gonna toss this one to Jeremy as I've stuck my uh, head firmly into the snow. <laughs> 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 There's currently a lot of battles over those leasing um, arrangements. There's also in, in Bears Ear specifically um, sort of burgeoning fights over uranium development. Okay. And that's, um, there's some really interesting developments around that. We can get way into the weeds, but um, yeah, yeah. It's, there's, a, there's a consistent threat. The real update on Bears Ears is that the court case to reinstate the initial boundaries right. is progressing. And there's, um, I think, conservation and other organizations, intertribal organizations are cautious, cautiously optimistic about a, a, a upcoming um, result soon. 
Okay. I think another really last week, the Boundary Waters, um, the House of Representatives subcommittee just passed a really exciting bill that would have a mineral withdrawal for the areas surrounding the Boundary Waters and protect that area. Okay. Um, of course, that would have to make its way through the entire House and then, and then the, the Senate, Senate. But, yeah. but it is moving. And then um, the big update on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is the Trump administration is trying to force through and move through lease sales by 2021, which is um, not really a reasonable time frame for mm. a lot of the impact statements that would need to be done and, and have sort of been done. Um, so that's being legally challenged. And currently there's a big divestment campaign underway. And I think many of the major banks have said they will not fund projects that take place in the refuge with the exception of bank of America is one that they're really still working on. Oh gosh. I, I won't say so, anything. I've got to, may have to, no, change, just, may have to change my personal account. Back take a look right. at what credit card you have. Yeah. Yeah. So, so stay tuned for public trust Two. It gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets me to my next question. What's next for you guys besides basking in the glow of your, your success? Oh man! So Jeremy and I are, are developing some projects together and individually. Uh, Jeremy has a really interesting project that he's been putting together for a few years, and um, has some has gotten some recent funding on that I'm excited about. Um, uh, why don't you tell them about that, Jeremy? I think it's super cool. Oh man, yeah, it's a it's a labor of love, but it's um, I'm working with a Native American producer friend, and um, we shot a lot of footage around the Standing Rock issue, and in fact with several of his um, canoe family, friends and, and family, we took these traditional dugouts from the Pacific Northwest wow. and followed the Missouri River to the site of the protest in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the protests. And um, so we're taking a look at the role of protests in America, but kind of through that lens of that experience. And here we are, that was the very beginning of the Trump administration, and here we are four years later. And um, so it's a look at that. and. Um, we're really excited about it, but we have a ways to go with raising funds and things like that. Okay. But we'll uh, just need to watch the space and uh, we'll yeah. do let us know when that's uh, closer to, uh, to fruition. I think that Absolutely. would be. And then I guess the rest are sort of things, your conversations you had, you're talking to people, but uh, probably for the net time being, uh, not, not anything else yet. To, uh, well, Dave's got an exciting project he's doing again with Patagonia. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, I've got another one um, that I'm making. It's a short film about community energy in Europe. And I'm kind of describing this a lot like how I describe public trust. It's, a, it's about, like, I would say, whenever people are like, what are you making right now? I'd say, oh, it's a film about public, tra public lands, but trust me, it's more exciting than it sounds. Yeah. So that, that's what's going on with this one. It's about community <laughs> energy, but trust me, it's more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and may I just uh, second that? I mean, um, uh, if I had just... Yeah, if someone told me there was a film about public trusts or public lands, yes, I think uh, I'm sure I wouldn't be able to sell it to my wife. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I watched this one on my own, but uh, the uh, but it it it. I mean, despite maybe one comment of a reviewer who we've mentioned before, uh, I think um, um, I never felt like it uh, was placid in any places, and uh, I think it's a very tight one thirty or so that you've got there. Um, and I think it was, um, I, it held my, it certainly held my attention. 
Uh, I thought it was very beautifully done and uh, very insightful and uh, well worth anyone's um, minute, uh, hour and a half of, of their time to, to give this a watch, which you can do on YouTube and possibly other places. Uh, I think we're going to have to call it a wrap, but uh, it's, it's been a joy having you on. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. I really appreciate that. And I know our, yeah. our, our listeners do. Um, so thank you, uh, David Byers and uh, Jerry Rubing uh, from Public Trust, which, as we mentioned, is on YouTube. Uh, also want to give a shout out to This Is Distorted Studios here in Leeds, England. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.